Well, this morning, as we heard, is the first Sunday in Advent, and this term Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, and in the translation of the Greek word parousia, it commonly is referred to the second coming of Christ. And so for Christians, the season of Advent anticipates the coming of Christ really from three different perspectives. Christians have spoken of the three comings of Christ. First, we know, of course, in the flesh in Bethlehem, and then in our hearts daily, and finally in glory at the end of time. And so this season offers us a unique opportunity to sort of focus in the midst of all the the chaos of the holidays and the distractions and the busyness to focus and to anticipate the coming of Christ, to share in that ancient longing for the coming of the Messiah and to be alert for that second coming. And so we'll talk about these themes as we light the candles, the candle of hope, and then, of course, of peace, of love, and of joy in the coming weeks. And so at this time now, we're going to dismiss our kids to South Coast Kids. And so, Father, we thank you for all the young people, for all the children. We pray that you be with them as they go and they have their church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The message, Live Hopefully. And this sermon, like every good sermon, Michael, I was... uh, going to uh, wish you a happy birthday, and then I saw that you weren't here, and I thought we weren't going to get the chance to embarrass you, and then you walked in, and so now we do get the chance, and so it's Michael's birthday today, and so if somebody wants to start a round of happy birthday, I can preach, but I can't sing, so Michelle? Just in case anybody thought you were safe, if you came in once I get started, we'll stop the whole, the whole thing. So, no, happy birthday, brother. Uh, and so this morning, like, like I said, every good sermon should always point to Christ. The best thing a preacher can hear is not, hey, that was a good sermon, but hey, we have a great Savior, amen? And so sermons are meant as teaching moments. But we've said, and we've kind of been on this theme for a while, that it's not just information to make us smarter. My wife would say, say smarter, pronounce your R's, but you can't take the New England out of the kid, right? So smarter, they're not, called, they're not just to make us smarter. Hopefully they do, and knowledge is important because it helps us to know who God is. But it's not just to know who he is intellectually, but know who he is relationally, right? To make us more like Jesus. Information that leads to transformation, right? The application of that. And again, the same theme we've sort of been on for the past two months here now. So teaching that we can come to know Jesus more and more and that we love Jesus more and more. And then we see these characteristics, this fruit of the Spirit made more manifest in our lives. And so we know the fruit of the Spirit. It's found in Galatians 5. 22 and 23, and I'm going to remind us, it's made up of the following nine gifts. It's love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Now, it's easy. Oftentimes, when we, when we hear these things, we say, boy, the world needs more of those things. And that's true. But you know what we, we, should, what we should say first? boy, I need more of those things in my life. Amen? Because, you know, when we talk about revival, we usually say, you know, my community needs revival and my country needs revival and my family needs revival, but we got to start with my heart 
needs revival. Amen? It begins with us. And so peace, love, and joy, these are fruits of the Spirit. And in the coming weeks, we'll light those candles. But it's important that we realize that all of this is only possible because of the topic this morning. That the entire life of the Christian is grounded in the hope we have in Christ. And that hope is unique in that it's the only hope the world has. Ephesians 2.12, Paul writes, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That was our previous condition. That's our condition before Christ. We have no hope. Romans 15.13, Paul says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So our faith is is tied to this hope, and and as we walk in faith, and as we develop a relationship with Jesus that goes deeper and deeper, this fruit of the Spirit is made manifest in our lives. This is not, we don't look at the fruit of the Spirit, and I mean, I don't want to say we don't, because it's it's good to be conscious and aware, but if we just look at them and and we say, you know, I wish, I hope that I'm going to be more, you know, gentle, or more self-controlled, or more all these things today. And, and it reminds me of when Paul says to the Galatians, you, you foolish Galatians, what began in the Spirit, this, this spiritual exchange, this beginning of your walk with Jesus was a spiritual transaction. Do you now think you can complete it in the flesh by your own efforts? I read about a road that was paved with good intentions, right? We've all heard that expression. So we've said before, again and again, that uh, Leonard Ravenhill liked to say, a sinning man stops praying, and a praying man stops sinning. So it's not that we're not conscious and aware of the sin in our lives, and the things we ought not to do, and the things we ought to do. That's true, but it's all grounded and rooted in our relationship with Jesus. If we pray more and we fall deeper in love with Him, then these things will come about. This fruit of the Spirit will be made manifest. If you're deeply in love with Jesus, you can't help but produce fruit in your life. And so it's all grounded in that. And so I want us to talk this morning about where our hope is. Because, you know, we've said again and again that as we hear these things, the Bible makes us uncomfortable. The Bible pokes us and prods us, and that's good. Because you're either in life, you're either growing Or you're comfortable. You're either seeking comfort or growth. And if you're growing, you're not comfortable. Growth isn't comfortable, amen? But if you're comfortable, you're not growing. And the goal in this life isn't to just be comfortable. It's to grow into the character of Jesus Christ. So hope, it's commonly used to mean a wish. And so to the world, its strength is in in the strength of a person's desire. You know, I love when people say, you know, because uh, people don't want to say, you know, you're in my prayers now, so people will say you're in my thoughts, which is, which is nice. I understand that. You want to think of people. But people will say, well, I'm going to be thinking about you. And it's nice, but there's no power in wishful thinking. It's, it's empty. I mean, it's a nice sentiment, and I, and I understand relationally we, we think of people, and that's nice when somebody says, hey, I'm thinking of you. I understand that. That's a, that's a nice thing. But we need to pray. We need to believe in the power of prayer. And we don't hope like the world hopes. Our hope isn't tied to outcomes or expectations in this life necessarily. In the Bible, hope is the confident expectation of what God has promised. And so our hope is rooted in the strength of God's faithfulness. 
Our hope isn't in the pastor or the church or in other Christians because that will they'll always let you down. Our hope is in Christ alone. Amen? In the word of God, Psalm 39, 7, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Some of us may be in a season of waiting, a season of uncertainty, a season of, of discomfort, a season of going, God, I, you know, where are you in this? And sometimes we can't see him. Sometimes we can't hear him. Sometimes he seems silent. But yet we hope. And it's not a blind hope. It's a hope knowing who God is, knowing his faithfulness. You know, so often in the midst of difficulty, it feels like we're alone. And then when we go a little further in the journey, we get that perspective and we look back and we see how God was holding us in his powerful hands, how he was with us, how he doesn't leave us, how he doesn't forsake us. And so the biblical understanding of hope is tied to faith because apart from Christ, there is no hope. Apart from Christ, uh, faith in anything other than Christ is useless. Apart from Christ, the best we can hope for is, uh, you know, uh, and when I was an atheist, I tell people, you know, I had integrity as an atheist. And what I mean by that was that I was consistent in the way I viewed the world. When I didn't believe in God, I thought the purpose of life is to increase pleasure and minimize pain. That's consistent if this is all there is. But it's not all there is. And so my, my view of, and, and not only does that not work experientially, anybody try that? doesn't work well, right? Why? Because no matter what we put in that, in that place, that, that, that hole in our, in our spirits, in our souls, no matter what we try to fill there, something's wrong. It just doesn't feel right. It's never enough money. It's never enough relationships. It's never enough, you know, accolades. None of those things are going to fulfill us. Why? Because we are created in the image of God. And we are created to glorify God. That our fulfillment in this life comes when God gets the glory for how we live. And there is nothing on earth more fulfilling than when you're in the midst of a, a situation or a conversation or relation. You're, you're, you're pouring into somebody and you realize that God is using you. That you're an instrument at that moment of his grace and mercy. And what else is there? I remember a, a quote, and I don't remember who said it, but it was, who among you, if called, to, if called to be to save souls, would lower your position to that of a king or a general? Who among you, if called to save souls, that's every one of us, that's not just the pastor, who would want to lower yourselves to the position of a king or a general? Who would want worldly authority and worldly leadership over the ability to be used of God? See, if Christ has not been raised, Paul says, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. The world says, and I've had conversations and people say, well, you know, Jesus was a, was a nice guy. I mean, he was a good teacher. Why can't you just leave him at that? Because the Bible doesn't allow that. The Bible doesn't give you that option. You know, and I've had so many conversations, and I had a conversation once with a guy, and, uh, and he said, you know, I, I would agree that, you know, let's say Jesus is the, is the top of, of ethics. Let's say he's the most perfect human that ever lived, and he's the, you know, the pinnacle of, of human achievement and ethics and morality. Let's, let's give him that. And I said, if you can give him that, and you can't bow down and worship him as God, you don't have an intellectual problem. You have a heart problem. That's just sin, because you acknowledge that if that's the case, and he is God, a God to be worshipped, rather than just a, a teacher to be, you know, uh, encouraged by, then you have an obligation to respond. 
then there's a, a t- eternity hangs in the balance. And so Paul doesn't say Jesus is a d- good teacher. Paul says if Christ hasn't been raised, if the resurrection did not take place historically, actually, then his preaching is useless, our faith is useless, and at some point he says, and we're of all people to be most pitied. People should feel bad for us if that's the reality. But the truth is, 1 Peter 1.21, through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. And so we have to be honest with ourselves now. Is our hope simply in desired outcomes, or is it in God himself? You know, I, I use this example a lot. And it's so profound and it's so powerful to me that I can't help but think of it all the time. But there's a pastor, some of you guys know, Nate Hall. And Nate Hall, uh, is, you know, loves the Lord. He lost his daughter, teenage daughter. I can't, you know, cannot imagine. And he said that the most significant spiritual thing, and, that, you know, there's obviously this, this battle and this, you know, as pastors, he said, you know, we, we kind of make this deal with God that I'm going to serve you and you're going to protect my family. Like, that's kind of the unwritten deal, right? So he felt like, hey, God, you didn't hold up your end of the bargain. I don't understand this. And so he struggled. But he said the most profound thing to come in that breakthrough, in that time where you wrestle with God, where you, where you tell him you don't understand, where you cry out to him, where you push back, because we can do that. We do that. That's okay. That's a relationship. He can take it. We can be honest with him. He knows our heart anyway. But I'll never forget, Nate Hall said this. He said, you know, up until that point, I had always prayed to God to do certain things. Not necessarily selfish things for him, but hey, God, I'm going to go meet with this family. Would you do this? Well, hey, God, you know, in my life, I'm dealing with this. Would you do this? Or hey, God, for the church, would you do this? Or, or would you do this? Or God, can, can, you, can you do this for us? And he said it was only after he suffered that traumatic loss that he began to pray, Lord, help me to see what you're doing and be okay with that. And I've never forgotten that. I'm always reminded of that because that's it. I mean, it's easy to have faith when we understand everything going on around us. It's easy to have faith when it makes sense. But it's hard in the valley. It's hard when, when everything inside you says, you know, give up hope. You know, I think of Job's wife. Like when everybody else had given up, you'd think at least your wife's going to stand by you. And she's like, you, would you just curse God and die? It's like, hey, thanks for the support, honey. That's awesome. But his hope wasn't, wasn't in his wife and it wasn't in his friends. It was in the God he knew. And it didn't mean he didn't struggle. But the blessing in, in the book of Job was not that at the end he got his stuff back. The blessing in the book of Job that he felt deeply the presence of God when he needed it the most. And it was messy. It wasn't neat. Do we always pray that God would do what we think he should do? Or do we pray, Lord, help me to be okay with what you are doing. Help me to see what you are doing. Because he is always doing something. Now, what are some of our expectations? Here's some observations. 
I'm going to talk about, about money and the lottery. And, it, and when I say money, I don't just mean material wealth. I mean, I'm talking about that. But we have this sense in the West that, that with money comes, you know, power and it comes, it comes preferred treatment and it comes that people look at you different. And in and the, and the world, that's true. But my point when I say money is, is this, this idea that somehow our status is going to elevate us. And so we're so sufficiently distracted by these, these, you know, searches and these, you know, if only I had this and if only I did this and, you know, and we, we, it's like a child, you know, when you're a kid, you say, oh, dad, I remember as a kid, like, dad, if you buy me a go-kart, that was like, I always wanted a go-kart. That was my, my thing. It was like the thing I never got in my life. Dad, if you only bought me a go-kart, I would never want anything else in my life. And we laugh as parents because we go, yeah, I buy a go-kart the next year, you're going to want something else. But we do the same thing. Lord, if you'd only show up in this situation, Lord, if you'd only do this, and then quickly we forget and we complain. There's a a financial therapist, that's a thing. This guy in in Salina Beach, California, Dr. Tom Meinhelm, he's a financial therapist, and he deals mostly with people after they win the lottery. And he said that more people self-destruct and end up so much more unhappy than they were beforehand because they had this expectation that money was going to fix all their problems. And I think it was Warren Buffett who said, the only problems money fixes is money problems. Doesn't fix soul problems. Doesn't fix fix spiritual problems. Doesn't fix desire problems. And we can exchange wealth for a whole bunch of other stuff. We think will fulfill us, relationships, careers, titles, degrees, whatever it is. So many of us, we say we're Christians. We say we believe in Jesus. We recite the Apostles' Creed. But in the day-to-day trenches, what do we really put our faith in? Because for the world, hope is tied to the expectation of a desired outcome. That's what hope is. It's wishful thinking. And if the outcome doesn't seem to come about, then what happens? People can become hopeless. We're living in a world when people look at, whether it's the opioid crisis or the divorce rate or anything, anything. You know what our problem is? It's hopelessness. We're living in a world without hope. That's the problem. But for Christians, our hope is tied to our faith. And this is very important. Do we have the right expectations of God? Do we understand his purposes for our lives? Tim Keller said this in a sermon I was listening to. He said, we have a a tendency to come to God and we tell him he's our king. And then immediately we ask him for something. Some perceived need or want. And now the Bible says you have not because you ask not. So I understand, you know, that there's a sense of, of bringing to God our petitions. That's okay to do that. But if every time we pray, if every time somebody calls me up, like, like my, not, my, not my kids, my kids are good kids, but I think of my son sometimes, but hey dad, it's like, you know, how's things good? Yeah. Hey, I need some money, right? Like if every time somebody calls you, it's because they need something. What are you going to start to think? Right? And so do we do that with God? Is every exchange about, hey, what can you do for me? Right? So Tim Keller said this, we tell him he's our king and then immediately we ask for something, some perceived need or want. And the reality is that if we're honest, whatever that extra thing is that we think we need in addition to Jesus, that can be our king. That can be on the throne. That relationship or job or car, that object, our affection cannot be Jesus if we're not careful. 
And ultimately, that means that rather than he be our king, we are attempting once again to be our own king. But the throne cannot be shared. It can never be shared. And putting anything else on the throne of our hearts will always lead us, always, to restlessness, to despair, and to a life without hope. Psalm 42.5 Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. Now the reality is hoping in, in God doesn't come to us naturally. And so we must preach it to ourselves. You know, I tell people every week, you know, all these sermons get preached to me first. So if they're cutting or if they're challenging or they make you uncomfortable, how do you think they make me feel? They, they, this is the word of God presented, and, and it's okay if it makes us feel uncomfortable. It's okay if it convicts us, and it, and it causes us to take a look at our lives and change some things. It should do that. The best sermon you preach to yourself this week may be only three words long, hope in God. Some of us need to hear that over and over again, hope in God. Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And we have, again, as Jamie said, an eternal perspective. And so I love the way the psalmists wrestle and fight and struggle to maintain their hope in God. Because we can get discouraged and think it's all, well, if I'm a Christian, I trust in Jesus. I mean, I should always have hope. Yeah, but it's messy. It's not neat. It doesn't look like you think it's going to look. And that's why you read the psalmist and you see this wrestling, this struggling. You, you see this sense of, oh God, you know, I cry out, where are you? Because that's the normal Christian experience. You know, we can see in the Bible what happens when hope is tied to expectations rather than to faith. In Luke 19, verse 36 through 44. Luke 19, I'll give you a minute to turn there and if somebody finds it, you can say the page. Luke 19, verse 36. 1048, thank you. You know, this, this gets read again and again, and it's read as a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And I think we miss something that's very significant. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And then this, the most significant, I think, and what we're going to focus on here today. Verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will leave no stone unturned because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus, 
the one who is cheered and praised, would soon be mocked, scorned, and cast aside by the same ones who did the cheering. You know, again, it's interesting that many times we read this scripture and we just see the celebration. And it's true, there's a celebration of his entry into Jerusalem. And so we tell the story with great excitement. And it's explained as, as a victory parade. But that's not what Luke intends here. And, and, and in verse 41, when it says Jesus wept, other translations say he wailed. Why? Why? Because he loves us? Because he looks at us, at you and me, with a perfect love? I think of in the rich young ruler, when it says, and Jesus looked at him and had a great love for him. And he looks at us with that, with that love for us. And too often, like the rich young ruler, we choose to walk away from the only hope that exists. And so on Palm Sunday, as Jesus approached Jerusalem, Jesus knew the conditions surrounding the people. He knew their circumstance, and he knew their situation. And he knows your circumstance, and he knows your situation. And he cares deeply about that. And it's a concern to him. But you know what's even more of a concern? Your condition. The condition of your heart and of your soul. And you see, that's what they missed. The Jews were in search of someone. They desired a king, a conqueror. They desired someone who would set them free. And so they saw the mighty works of this man, Jesus. And some of us, you know, we need to be set free from things. And we hear people testify and we hear and we see lives changed by Jesus, and it's good, that's okay, that's good that we're drawn to that. They were witnesses to him restoring sight to the blind. They saw evidence of him healing the lame. They saw him feed the multitudes with leftovers to spare. They heard that he raised people from the dead, and they listened to him teach with authority. And so they knew with power and authority like that, Jesus was the one who would set them free. And he can, and he wants to. But he wants to set you free from more than just your circumstance and your situation. He wants to set you free from an eternity without him. He wants to set you free from the power of sin in your life. So Jesus comes to Jerusalem, and the crowds begin to cheer, and Jesus looked at them in the midst of their cheering, and he wept. In my life, in our lives, do we look at God simply for what he can do for us? Do we cheer him and praise him and sing songs to him only when things are going well, when he weeps because we're not willing to give him our hearts? Because the cheering is a worldly response. Everybody cheers for people who will do something for them. That's not spiritual. When people are hungry, and they're getting fed, fed with bread and fish. People cheer. And God will often do that. He will meet our physical needs. But his main concern is always with our ultimate need. You know, Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. And he still loved him. Jesus knew when he was feeding the multitudes with the bread and the fish. That there were a good majority of those people that were only there for the bread and the fish. And he fed them. And so we have two options when Jesus asks us to follow him. 
After we see the miracles, after we experience the miracle of salvation in our own lives, after Jesus comes into our hearts and he sends his Holy Spirit, now how will we act when things don't look the way we think they're supposed to look? We can walk away like the disciples in John 6. This is after Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's after he walks on water. After he does miracles in your life and sets you free and begins to do a new thing, then, then maybe there's things in the Bible you don't fully understand or, or you don't agree with or, or you, know, you want to you change what they say. We don't want to accept his terms. And so in this instance, it had to do with eating the flesh and drinking the blood. Verse 60 of John 6. Therefore, many of disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? Do we do that when we encounter things in the Bible that we don't understand or agree with? Well, this is difficult. I mean, you know, some of the things I understand, but this, I don't get this. But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? What then if you see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. The words of the Bible, not what man says, but what Jesus says. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, for this reason I have said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him by the Father. And then verse 66 And how heartbreaking is this truth? As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. How often do we see in our churches, in our families, when somebody encounters something different, and rather than walk with hope and with faith and understanding who Jesus is, they withdraw And we're not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the 12, you do not want to go away also, do you? He didn't say, well, no, what I really meant was this. Or he didn't say, well, no, 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 hear me out. Let me me explain. No. He said, you guys have a choice to make too now. With this information that you don't understand with your worldly eyes. When you've seen all that I've done. What are you going to do? What are you going to do when you encounter something that you don't understand? You don't want to go away too. Also, do you? That's one option, and sadly, many choose it. The Bible says, wide is the road that leads to death, and narrow the road lead to life. I wish that wasn't in there. It breaks my heart that it's in there. But it is. It's in there. Because we're so thick-headed, and we're so rebellious, And we think we got it all figured out. But here's the other option. Verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You know, it's always interesting to me when these pastors, you know, write books and they talk about how they progressed and they walked away from the faith. I mean, not to mention that begs the question of what progression is and, you know, philosophically, how do you get the idea of progression if there's no ultimates in any sense, but I digress. 
But it's always about, well, I, I came to think this, or I felt this, or, and it never has to deal with, what about the truth of who Jesus is? Did you not encounter that? Did you not decide either Jesus is who he claimed to be? Or like Paul says, the whole thing's worthless. I mean, what, what do you do with Jesus? It's never, well, you know, it, it always has to do with feelings and preferences and, you know, and thoughts and ideas. It never has to do with, what do you do with Jesus Christ? Like Peter, we've believed, we understand you are who you say you are. And so despite what we feel and what we think and what our neighbors tell us and what our emotions tell us, we know that you're the Holy One of God, you're the Messiah. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go? Where am I going to go? Back? Back to seeking the things of the world? Back to seek after pleasure and power and never be fulfilled and always feel restless? That's what I'm going to exchange the peace of God and the joy of the Lord for? I don't think so. I don't know about you, but the enemy's taken enough from me and from my family. And I'm never going back, amen? While Jesus weeps, realizing that our own choices like Jerusalem will lead to our own destruction, that's why Jesus weeps. Because he looks and he says, my foolish children, how long will you seek fulfillment in the things in this life other than me? When I want to give you what so much, what you long for deeply, what you don't even see, you don't even understand, you don't even fathom. God wants to use us, me and you, to do his work through us, but he cannot if we don't accept his terms. God cannot use you if you're still wrestling with him for control. How long in my life was I the clay that sat on the shelf because I was entirely unmoldable? Listen, Jesus' terms are to prune, prune us that we may bear more fruit. Jesus didn't come to grant us our wishes. He came to be the fulfillment of our wishes himself. Do we understand that? Do we come to God and just say, Lord, I want this and I want this and I want this. And God says, I sent you my son. I sent you what you need most deeply, and you're asking me for all this other stuff. Jesus Christ claimed to be the true and living God. Buddha simply said, I am a teacher in search of the truth, and Jesus said, I am the truth. Confucius said, I never claimed to be holy, and Jesus said, who convicts me of sin? Muhammad said, unless God throws his cloak of mercy over me, I have no hope. And Jesus said, unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. Ultimately, our Lord's message was himself. So do not lose sight of the fact that through any circumstance, you are in the presence of the Prince of Peace. And so quickly, I just want to talk through some steps practically that will help us build a foundation of hope that will carry us through the storms of life. You see, in order for us to focus the ca on the character of God, to understand the character of God, in order for us to have faith and hope in his promises, we have to know who he is. We need to learn about the God revealed to us in Scripture. And so number one is we have to submit ourselves to him. To not only throw him, to throw ourselves at his mercy, but to submit ourselves. Submission. Can't say, yeah, Jesus, I'm going to follow you until I don't feel like it, and then you're going to follow me. How's that work? 
I don't want Jesus to follow me. I don't want anyone to follow me. Unless it's like Paul says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I think of how many times in my life, I've always been influential to some degree, but I always influence people with the wrong thing. I was like, hey, hang out with Brian. You'll get in trouble. Jamie knows, right? I was, it was, we were influential, but we were influencing people to do the worst of the worst of the worst. And thank God, now maybe God will use us to, to some benefit, to be trophies of his mercy and grace, and to, so people will see the hope we have in Christ. God is the source of our hope. We need to come to him in humility, 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7, and he will restore us. Come to him in humility, he will restore us. We want the restoration, but we don't want the humility. Strengthen your faith. Allow God's previously fulfilled promises to renew your hope. Look back, because God has given us a written record and the testimony of others and in the Bible, but also in our own lives. Look back in your life and tell me you don't see the grace and mercy of God again and again and again. He's provided hope for believers in centuries past, and we can look to these things for renewal, 1 Chronicles 16. Trust God's timing. Sometimes God answers our prayers and fulfills our hope quickly. And other times, for his own divine reasons, he allows us to wait. Remember, it was through faith and patience that Abraham's hope was fulfilled. As we said last week, learn to live with gratitude. Thank God today. Don't focus just on the things you don't have or the things you don't, you know, you think you need. Focus on who God is and what he's done and what you have today. I know it's tough to rejoice as we wait for hopes to be fulfilled, but rejoicing enables God to perfect us in ways we are unable to see at this time. Our characters developed. Romans 5, 1 through 5, this kind of hope purified in the crucible of waiting and sometimes in suffering does not disappoint. Have you lost hope? Because you can regain lost hope with Jesus' help. Turn to the author of all hope and rest in him. Hebrews 6.29, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. Father, we thank you this morning for the hope we have in you. We're thankful for the things you have done in our own lives, for the promises you have made. But Lord, help us to not miss out on the greatest gift that you've ever given, the presence in the person of Jesus Christ himself. So as we transition now to this communion, to this time of remembering, we remember with expectation, we remember with hope. Help us as we submit to you humbly, as we place our lives day by day and moment by moment in your hands to trust and hope in you. Help this, the fruit of the Spirit be made more manifest in our lives so that people would see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven. It's in his name we pray. Amen.